This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Claire Fletcher, welcome back to Better Reading. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. Yeah, I know. It's so nice, isn't it? And it's feeling really, well, if you live in Sydney, it's feeling really summery, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah. Bright and summery. It's, it's hot out there. <laughs> it is hot. It is hot. I love it, though. Uh, Claire was born and raised in St George in regional Queensland and studied journalism and business at QUT in Brisbane. After graduating, she moved to Sydney for an internship at the Walkley Foundation for Journalism and has been there ever since, with the exception of a couple of years spent freelancing and falling in love in New York. Oh, did you fall in love in New York or fell in love with New York? Well, both. You did? Yeah, but I met my husband there. Oh, okay. We're going to go back to that story. Okay. Claire, didn't I tell you this was a relationship podcast? Did I tell you that? (laughs) I know enough to know that this could go in any direction, Cheryl, and I'm excited. (laughs) Okay. Claire currently works in communications for the Walkley Foundation. In 2019, she completed the year of the novel course at Riding New South Wales with Emily Maguire. Oh, my God. So do you know I love Emily? Yeah, I think we talked about her last time. Oh, we did. (laughs) So your publisher is Nikki Krista. (laughs) And um, your, what, will I call her a mentor, is Emily Maguire. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. We are so connected. In 2021, her short story, Death's Waiting Room, won the Body in the Library category at the Scarlet Stiletto Awards. Her latest novel, Love Match, is a wonderfully funny story about learning a new game, figuring out who you are, and maybe even finding real love. Oh, my goodness. I just am so excited. Okay, firstly, I want to hear about New York. <laughs> Anything in particular? Yes. It's actually a long time since I've been. We went over to the States at the start of 2021 um, so that our daughter could meet her grandparents who are still in the US. Oh, um, wow. But it was in the middle of a big flare-up in the pandemic, so we we stayed with them in upstate New York and never actually made it into the city that Because they trip. really suffered quite badly in New York from COVID, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It we was were. a bit like parts of Italy, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. Um, okay, so tell me what first took you to New York, because, I mean, that's a city I love, and I did many, many home swaps there <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I think I, I'm going to blame it on watching a lot of romantic comedies as a young person, but I'd been working at the Walkleys for a few years, and, and I my passion had always been for magazines, and I was like... I'll just take myself over to New York. I'm sure I'll be able to find a magazine job. And, and yeah. was that from Queensland or no, you'd moved no, to? No, I had moved down to Sydney after I finished uni 
And yeah, I had done a couple of years. So yeah, I, I kind of just quit my job and I and I took myself over to New York. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it is not, life is not a rom-com and I did not waltz into an amazing magazine job, but I did meet the lovely man who's now my husband. Mm. So I spent the next couple of years coming and going from New York because I didn't have a it's proper a long visa. way from Sydney. Well, try yeah. going between New York and St. George in regional Queensland. Oh, my goodness. I yeah. moved back in with uh, my dad uh, at one point when I came back to save some money and, and figure out a visa to go back. And that was quite a contrast. Yeah, because, you know, um, you probably remember I go to San Francisco once a mm-hmm. year and I've just bought my ticket for December. But it's a straight. It's 14 hours, mm. you know, from start to finish, nonstop. That's easy. But New York is not easy because you get off that plane and you think you're nearly there and you're not nearly there. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, try doing it coming home when you've just left the love of your life and you don't know when you're going to see them again. Okay. All right. Let's go back to the love of the life. (laughs) So you're in New York. Do you get a job eventually? Yes. Yes. I probably shouldn't talk about it too much because it was one of those, you know, paid under the table Okay. I did some bar work. I worked in a cafe. I was a little bit of a baker for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love baking. Yeah. Yeah. What, that really, that really or? like stopped my love of baking, actually. <laughs> right. I've never done it commercially, clearly. Is it baking cakes or baking bread? Uh, sort of cakes. We would, right. We would do muffins and cookies and bake-off croissants. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then tell me more. So you weren't in – did you find a job in the career that you wanted? Well, I ultimately ended up getting a foreign media visa, which was great, but that would allow me to work for, obviously, foreign media. I could yeah. freelance to Australian publications and I was still not actually allowed to earn money in the US. So, right. yeah, there was a bit of cash in hand to top that up and I was doing these weird sort of entertainment features. You know, often if there was a new show coming out, they would do these kind of roundtable interviews where you'd have a bunch of foreign media and you know, actors would cycle through and you'd get to do these brief, wild little interviews. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then how did the boyfriend, now husband, how did that happen? We are two very tall people. Yes, you are very tall. Well, he's even taller than me. Uh, And we were both at a concert, standing up the back. We were both there on our own and... Were you standing at the back because you were very tall? Yeah. And so was he? Yeah. Oh, wow. So uh, tall person gig guilt was how I described it. But then once you're with someone else, you get a lot bolder. So we did block a lot of people's view. Yeah. Once uh, you're with another tall person. Yeah. Yeah. But it was was a special show because it was a, a band that I really loved and they were playing each of their five albums um, five shows in one week and I had bought the tickets oh, wow. before I left Australia and then it kind of t- it got to the day and I realised I was going to five concerts on my own uh, and then there he was on his own the first night so we got to hang out. How tall are you? I think I'm about six foot. Oh okay. Yeah. That's not that tall. You look taller. <laughs> well Amy I'm only saying that because I think my little nephew Connor who's six, 15, he's he's six foot. Mm. But boys can be kind of tall and lanky, can't they? Yeah. Well, he's six foot six and surprisingly <gasps> oh my um, God. coordinated. Is he, is he a basketballer? Uh, he's actually playing a lot of baseball at the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the exactly American pastime. What, that's exactly what I didn't imagine. <laughs> does, does he play baseball at Petersham? Uh, five Dock. 
Oh, five duck. Yeah. Okay, because they play baseball in my park. Okay, so you meet this guy. Do we know his name? His name's Dave. Yeah. I don't know how he's going to feel about yeah. us talking about him this much. Will he listen to the podcast? He might. Yeah, he yeah. might. Okay, and then you decided that this is the guy. Yeah, it was a bit of a lightning bolt. I mean, I, I actually went back and found the email that I sent to this to my sister the night that I met him. It was sort of like, oh, I met this lovely man tonight. We're going to have a really funny story to tell our children one day. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think kind of by the end of that week I sort of knew and I sort of spent the next couple of weeks trying not to say, I yeah. love you because yeah. that's a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. It's usually knew. a sign of... Cray cray, mental. If people say that straight away, <laughs> yes, I may be cray cray. But Cheryl. they do do it in the movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and maybe that maybe that serves me well as a as a writer of romantic comedies to be a bit cray cray mm. when it comes to love. <laughs> Absolutely, I think I think you've done um, the groundwork, haven't you? Well, you know what groundwork I haven't done is I've never done online dating. Oh, you haven't missed that. So right. I met, that was twenty ten when yeah. we met. Yeah, and so. Yeah, I kind of came back into a whole new world. It was very frustrating for a good friend of mine whose couch I was crashing on when I first got to New York and she'd been in the trenches online oh. dating and she was, you can know. imagine. It'd be, I mean, I haven't done it, but it must be awful. And then I just sort of waltz in, meet the love of my life and, yeah, yeah no. Yeah. It's such chance, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard to write about that aspect, but, you know, luckily there's lots of other Australian rom-com writers uh, writing about that really well. And you could always do your research. So talk to me about maintaining life. Like, at what point do you guys decide where you're going to live? You know, the reason why I go to San Francisco is because I've got a friend, an Australian friend that's married an American woman. But also, too, when I look at my parents who came from Lebanon to Australia, and that tie to home is always very strong. Does that, how does that play in your head? Yeah, it's difficult. And I have other friends who have married partners from another country. Yeah. And I think it is a, t- a tension in your love because for the rest of your life, one of you is not going to be yeah. in the home that you know. Uh, so I think I had about three and a half years. It felt like a long year, a long time, but yeah. it was three and a half years basically of me living in the States and then I Why ca- did you come back? Uh, I kind of needed a real job and I was offered one back at the Walkleys and also all of my friends were starting to get right. married. So, yeah. Um, and Dave was very game and, and came over and, you know, has really loved the lifestyle. He's really kind of thrown himself into it. Sport was a real gateway for him, actually, to Australian culture. We used to go and watch the Newtown Jets games at Henson Park. um, And he's a big rugby league fan now. But yeah, you know, I'm very conscious that I'm keeping him Mm. and our daughter away from his family, who would love to see more of us. Now, this is another interesting question. Do you think she's more American than she is Australian? How old is she? She's, she's three. Three. Oh, she's little. Yeah, she's she's definitely more Australian. She's got quite a funny <laughs> little accent. accent. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, she's in a really rapid phase of developing her language and the way that she talks and telling stories and imagination now. Three so is such a beautiful age. It's incredible to watch. Um, yeah. Yeah. So she's picking up a lot of what's around her, and it can be a bit confronting to see yourself almost reflected back through that little mimic in your house. Yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? Okay, so you're working at the Walkley. You come back for that. I mean, you know, 
Well, that must be a great job in itself. Can you tell people what the Walkley is for, for those that might not know? Yeah, so the Walkley Foundation is a non-profit organisation probably best known for the Walkley Awards, um, mm-hmm. which are the national awards for Australian journalism. Uh, those awards were founded in 1956 and there were five categories then and now there are 30 categories. Obviously, journalism has grown and changed mm. and evolved a lot in that time. Um, so there's all the different platforms recognised as... They're quite valuable to win an award, to win a Walkley, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, it's often you'll see a journalist in their bio or they'll introduce themselves. If they've won a Walkley, they will mention it. Oh, definitely. I hear it a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose what's, what's powerful about it is that those awards are judged by journalist peers. You know, it's yeah. panels of senior journalists who are making those selections. As the foundation, we just kind of administer and make sure that everything is, mm. is running with integrity. Mm. But, yeah, it's the industry recognising itself, which, you know, I think sometimes, you know, people think we can disappear up our own ass a little mm. bit. But there is a lot, I think, that's really valuable and important about journalism for our society. And, yeah, so it's always been something that I believe in really strongly. And I've been there forever now. Mm, I agree. I agree with all of that. I, I don't know whether we talked about this last time, but um, one of my trips to New York, I ended up meeting with Pulitzer. And there were three Australians that have won the Pulitzer. And one of them was Sebastian. One of them is Sebastian Smee, the art yes, critic. Yes, the art critic. Yeah. From New York. And also I, kn- I know Sebastian. And the other one is Geraldine Brooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Australian writer who lives on Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And the third one, I can't remember his name. Um, he goes, he's an Australian who'd lived in New York for a very long time. And this was back in the 60s or 70s. And he was a cartoonist. He's not with us anymore. But they were the three. And do you know when I was over there, they unpacked each box and I got to look at the applicants. Oh, oh it was they still have all the hard copy entries. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. They it was such an incredible visit because they're up there at Columbia University. It wasn't Bruce Petty, was it? No, it wasn't. No. I can't remember who it was. Um, we could look it up. So, yeah, the other Australian, we had to pause there and find out who that was, Pat Oliphant. He was an editorial card. Well, he won for editorial cartooning in 1966. So that's Sebastian Smee, Geraldine Brooks and Pat Oliphant. And that yeah. really shows the range. Yes. The Walkleys are similar. We don't recognise fiction like Geraldine's work. but No. Um, there's uh, enough fiction prizes, I think. Yeah, but yeah, yeah cartooning is part of the Walkley's photography. We've just um, been doing our photojournalism, judging, getting ready for an exhibition of those finalists, which is and usually, so exciting. It's so extraordinary, yeah. photojournalism, isn't it? And I feel so privileged every year when it comes around to the judging to you know sit in on a few sessions. Particularly, the photography is a favourite of mine. Yeah, and you know you get to sort of catch up on a year in news, and you also. S- hear some of the stories from behind the scenes of what it took to get those stories or the, mm. the legwork or the, the trust building that's gone in, particularly with photography, which can be really intimate. Mm. Yeah, it's well, lovely. And that actually informed a lot of mm. my first book, which was about a wedding photographer. I was really mm. drawing a bit on those conversations mm. and, and what I'd learned about how photographers work. And they're so powerful, aren't they? And they, I've got goosebumps now because I'm thinking of the three that I remember straight away when we're talking about this. One of them is the man who uh, was a refugee fleeing Syria. You might remember this photograph and he had his son in the suitcase Mm. and his head not 
you know, they're, they're, it was a soft leather suitcase, so the son's head was out. And that man had been walking for kilometres and kilometres carrying oh that goodness. suitcase with a little boy in it. There's also the refugee who died on the beach, the little boy mm. in the red. And the most powerful one, which I think was earlier this year, was in Africa where the chimpanzee was dying and the keeper was in, nursed him. Mm. And I just like, oh, my God, so powerful. I mean, one photograph. Right, it's worth a thousand words. You know, Absolutely. it puts us to shame sometimes. Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? And, they, you know, a lot of photographers risk their lives for these photos. And I think it's interesting, you know, because all of us is... Every one of us is carrying a camera now with our phone. Yeah. It's it's easy to maybe devalue the work of those professional photojournalists. And what you don't see in that singular moment is all of the preparation, the anticipation, the technical skill Absolutely. that goes into being ready to capture it. Looking at some of the sport photographers' work, oh, for yeah. example. But yeah. also how they have to be constantly, almost constantly be moving. I was mm. at the march, the S march, the walk, and I didn't expect to see so many people. And there was at one point where they, we were all walking down Cleveland Street and going to Victoria Park and the sea of people, it felt like hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Like it was amazing because, you know, there's a dip in that hill mm. as you're walking along that road. And I could see photographers just running with a crowd or running backwards and it's a a lot of work to capture that story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But and, so important and powerful. Oh, you know, I think all of those big moments of social change, we remember them as those images. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We need them. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Remind me how you came to writing. Because <laughs> that's why there's we're a here. book. Yeah, there's a book. It's called Love Match People. Uh, well, I I had always loved writing. Um, you know, going right back to childhood. But I kind of put fiction aside for a while, and so yeah, it was when I did that course with Emily in 2019. And what made you do the course? Well, I sort of was hitting a point where I was like, you need, you can't just dream of being a writer. If you're going to actually do it, you you need to have a go. It's, you know, writers write. Yeah. And I remember actually, I saw the incredible photojournalist Andrew Quilty. He was home from Afghanistan. We Is he related Christmas to drinks. Ben? They're cousins, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, Andrew's a photojournalist, but he's also published a book last year. Incredible. Yeah, wow. And he was he spent a lot of time in Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, and he was home, you know, for the Christmas holidays and and I was telling him that I was thinking about signing up to do this course so that I could write a book and he was like, you don't need to do a course to write a book. Like, if you're going to do it, just do it. 
I want to see you, you know, a year from now yeah. and see what you've done. So I did the course. I mean, I needed structure and I think that's actually a really common thing for women is that idea that we need to be qualified or we need permission to do it. And so that's something that I really encourage anyone who's thinking about writing is just have a go. Like you'll learn so much yeah. by doing it. But that said, you know, doing a course can give you some really good structure. Obviously meeting Emily was wonderful because she's such a generous teacher and also became kind of a mentor. I just love her. Yeah. Yeah. I had lunch with her a couple of days ago. Uh, I think I want to talk about writing courses because there's two minds out there. I hear this argument and I hear another argument that Yes, like you, it gives you structure. It you know gives you a starting point. It gives you a deadline. Accountability. You know, accountability. Especially if you're coming from journalism and you can't do anything without a deadline. Yeah. Having some external accountability can be powerful. Absolutely. And then the other argument that I hear is maybe we don't need writing courses because it's all becoming same, same. I don't know many people that don't do courses anymore. Well, you know, and I think that's and because... And they get different things out of them. Sorry. And courses can be so accessible now. Yeah. So I guess maybe in the past you'd be looking at program. You know, I know in the US there's a lot of talk about things like the Iowa Writers Program and that sort of MFA model where there's a lot yeah. of writers coming through that system and perhaps the, the works are kind of similar. Whereas, especially because I know, I suppose, a lot more commercial or genre writers now... You know, a lot of them or us are doing online courses. They might be short courses. They might be longer ones. Mm. Like the university system or a creative writing degree or a master's is just sort of one approach. And I think for some people that's exactly how they need to approach it. Mm. But I suppose, yeah, the risk is if if everyone waits until they feel qualified or they feel like it's the perfect conditions... Mm. Those stories will never be written and I and I worry about having barriers to entry for writers because, you know, we need more diverse voices and it's, it's precisely the people who m- may find it hardest to find the time to write or to do a course whose voices we really need to hear, who have something mm. new to say. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> do you know what I hear a lot from, from writers as well is having some writing buddies, right, and doing, you know, they all sit down and write 20,000 words or, t- you know, I don't know how many I'm making sprint. that up. Yeah, yeah, they do that sprinting together. And I think doing that with somebody else seems to energise that person, the writer. I read about it in a news article and it wasn't even specific to writing. It was more about like getting tasks done, this idea of body doubling. Yeah. Just having someone there next to you kind of doing something similar can be really motivating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear that a lot. I um, I was speaking to the Miles Franklin winner, Sh- uh, Shankari Chandra. Oh, my God, extraordinary. <laughs> You're such a good name dropper. You know everyone. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> is name dropping still name dropping if it's relevant to the conversation? I guess it's name dropping with purpose. Yeah, yeah. okay. Can I have that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, she was here. I'm not dissing you. I'm impressed. (laughs) Okay. Well, no, don't be impressed with me. Be impressed with her. Oh, she's incredible. She is absolutely amazing. Now, she works full time. Mm. She has four children, right? And she told me she writes on a Friday. I mean, it's just, it made, I went home thinking, what have I achieved in this world? (laughs) Right. <laughs> There's always someone. I There's mean, always someone. like Kate Solly, who wrote the beautiful Tuesday evenings with the Copeton Craft Resistance. Yeah. She's got six kids. 
Yeah, there you go. Or someone like Kira. And they find the time. Yeah, they find the time. Right. Yeah. And she told me, so she only writes one full day a week and that's Friday, so she must work four days a week. And then what she tries to do during – and I'd not heard this before – what she tries to do during the week is do, I think it was five 20-minute sprints, just 20 minutes so that she can keep that story going in mm-hmm. her head. Extraordinary, isn't it? Sally Hepworth did something similar. I think hers was, it was like nifty 350, doing 350 words at a time. Nifty 350. Yeah. And well, I, think, I hadn't heard that either. But it's, it's it. breaking it down into small chunks, isn't it? Yes. Because a book is yes. such a daunting prospect. Yes. And I'm not a writer, which, you know, I know everybody knows that. However, if I am feeling overwhelmed or daunted in my week, the only way I can manage it is to chunk it out. Mm. I have to think, okay, well, I can only do the next thing and then just wait for the next thing to come along. And if I wipe out what I've got in the future and just concentrate on the now, I'm almost sounding (laughs) woo-woo, but I'm not. (laughs) If I concentrate on the now, now it's more likely I'll get it done. Yep. Are you like that with your writing? Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. The most productive periods I've had is when I can build a steady routine because the only way to knock it over is is small bits regularly. But then it's also, it's easy to beat yourself up if you break your streak or you miss a day. Yeah. You can't be too hard on yourself because Mm. you just got to get back into it. Yeah. Um, Do you know what stops you from being too hard on yourself? Age. (laughs) That's, that's true. What, seriously, that's yeah. what's come for me. That's the wisdom of getting old is really I'm over being hard on myself. Hmm. I hear yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. As much as I wish I had been writing all through my 20s and my early 30s, I don't know that I was ready. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's and, – and becoming a parent as well, I think. Does that know, change everything? Not necessarily, but I think it does give you a bit of perspective – yeah. perspective on your time and how you use it yeah um, and also on how of, much things matter and there's a lot of guilt around parenting there is and that's something that I'd love to explore yeah. in in a story one day um, yeah. and I think you know a lot of people are talking and thinking about this particularly when it comes to that balance of creativity and motherhood yeah obviously there's you know books like bad art mother and there's a lot of non-fiction coming out in this space um so hopefully I won't be too late when I get to it but yeah it's it's you have to be selfish to create and mm. finding the space for that when you have a really small child can or sometimes you have four or five or five I know it can sometimes feel like you're not doing anything well yeah. I was I'm I'm a you know, I, I'm addicted to podcasts. I listen to podcasts. Everybody knows that. You know, I listened to two this morning, actually. Do you know, it's so healthy for you because I've got headphones on and I'm walking. Yeah. And if one starts and I'm not back home, then I just keep going. Have you heard my podcast? <laughs> no. Have you got a podcast? We've only got a couple of episodes out, but yeah, it's called That Rom-Com Pod. Okay. We I'm talk about rom-coms. Yeah. Yeah. That's Me. a good uh, brand drop. On this podcast. I, know, I love that it. That was a bit shameless of me. Oh, um, go for it. But me and Karina May, who wrote oh. the wonderful Duck à l'Orange for breakfast. Right. We're mates and we write together and we always end up talking about rom-coms, so we figured we'd try yeah. recording it. It's okay. been a lot of fun. 
Well, one of the things I was just trying to remember for a minute then, where, where was I going with that? This is a good mother story. Yeah. So I listened to Ezra Klein mm-hmm. and I, he's extraordinary thinker, extraordinary writer. He's American. He now writes for the New York Times. He's a geek writer, but super, super smart. He's really into data, right? Yeah, and everything else. Everything. And also very, very level-headed thinking, whereas I'm kind of emotional. I don't know if you get this from me, but I'm an emotional kind of thinker. (laughs) He's completely not that. He's there and I'm here. But anyway, he was talking to someone and he's recently become a parent And they were talking about bravery or something. I can't remember the exact conversation. He was asked by the person that was interviewing him, or vice versa, I can't remember whose podcast it was, who are some of the bravest people you know, right? Who are those people that are self-sacrificing? And he said, oh, easy, mothers. I was really, I thought he was going to say, you know, Barack Obama, you know, I just thought he was going to stay in that political stance and he, he's just had young children himself and he went straight to, straight for that, he, n- not even having to think about it. And I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the thing, and I try to, you know, I think we've got to get away from this idea of mothers do this and, and fathers do that. I Absolutely. think we need to start talking about parenting in a less gendered way because it... You know, we've got to give men the space to step up more mm-hmm. if we want them to. Yeah, there's so much pressure. I don't think it's ever been... I don't think mothers have ever faced more expectations, especially when you are a new mum and you're kind of probably spending a bit of time on your phone, you know, looking for answers, trying to figure things out, looking for guidance. Um, and, you know, it can be so helpful to follow someone on Instagram who's giving you advice on mm. parenting, but it also means that you've got this constant stream of people performing mm. parenthood at a level that you're probably not going to live up to mm. um, every day. You might on your best mm. day, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot more pressure around it, or people can put more pressure on themselves. Mm. And yeah. I think mothers do that a lot, put yeah. pressure on themselves. Anyway, um, we, we're running out of time. We <laughs> haven't talked about love much, and I don't want to get into, into trouble from Nikki. Yes. So tell me about love match, and tell me because this is your second book, isn't yeah. it? The challenges of writing a second book. Yes, it's a different thing. And I suppose, you know, with my first book, Five Bush Weddings, you, you don't know where it's going to go. No uh. one's waiting for it. There's no expectations around it. So you can kind of tinker and play with it. And then when you have a two-book deal, as I did, someone is waiting for the yeah. second book. You know, you yeah. have contractual obligations and you of have a deadline. You um, and you also know that people have read your first book and have liked it and, and they want to know what you do next. So mm-hmm. there's a whole different set of expectations. So I think in general that second book can be more difficult and I certainly found that, but I think this one was particularly challenging for me because it raised some sort of emotional territory that I was also nervous yeah. about this this story coming out. And partly that's because, so uh, Love Match kind of follows on from the events of Five Bush Weddings. It's set in the same world. It has different main characters who, if you have read Five Bush Weddings, you'll recognise them from the background of the story. Um, But they were quite a small part in Five Bush Weddings. And so it's Sarah Childs um, is a pretty young woman who lives in the town of South Star, a completely fictional place. And she's kind of drifted away from the world a little bit. So she dated one of the characters in Five Bush Weddings and it didn't work out. So when this story in Love Match starts, 
everyone in the town knows that she's been dumped and they're, you know, they care for her. They're looking out for her. They want to make sure that she's okay. But that's quite suffocating for her to feel like everyone is sort of watching her every move and so invested in her life. Um, and so she would very happily just spend all of her time on her family her family's property, which is called Dunroman, um, but her parents can kind of see that she, she's withdrawn from the world. So they tell her that if she wants to take over the place, she needs to spend some time building up her social networks and getting more involved in the community. They kind of give her a year to get into it. And she's a pragmatist, so she decides to just go with it. And so, yeah, she reconnects with some friends that she's kind of let slip and she joins a football team mm-hmm. um, and, you know, does some work in the community, ends up doing the showgirl competition. So it's really looking at small towns and the kind of structures um, and institutions that hold them together. And then as well as Sarah's story, we also follow Mabel, who uh, is also known as the Bush Telegraph. She's an older woman. She's a big gossip. She's really invested in matchmaking and other people's relationships. And in this story, we kind of flash back to her as a young woman in the 1960s to try and understand, you know, how does she she go from being this kind of quite shy, reserved young woman with big dreams of leaving South Star to then becoming this matriarch Mm. who's heavily involved in the town, never married, never had children of her own. You know, how do you get from there to here? Mm. So, yeah. Mm. No, it's lovely. It's a cute story. And it's beyond cute. They're not just romances, of (laughs) course. Uh, You know, of course, Claire, we're out of time. We could be talking forever, (laughs) I think, here. Um, Congratulations. Keep on writing. We're enjoying it as readers very much. And thank you for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.